From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're taking a look back at failed tech products to see what we can learn by studying their demises. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined by my co-host, Quinn Nelson. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We are moving to a big piece of technology today. Quite literally. Massive. Well, okay, it's not massive, but it's it's pretty big. Compared to the Zune, <laughs> it's yeah, enormous. Well, I mean, the Zune is pretty big. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is bigger. This is bigger. I've enjoyed watching people on Twitter. Some people were listening to the Zune episode on a Zune. Somebody got the Newton episode playing on a Newton. These people all need hobbies, but until they get hobbies, I love this very much. It's fantastic. And we tricked myself into buying Zunes on eBay. I bought four of them. That's that's not good. The good news <laughs> is you can't buy what we're talking about today. So, because there are none of them left. That's true. I would if you could. This is a very cool piece of tech. Yeah, I did buy a bunch of car magazines, though. So, we're talking about a, a car today. I bought a bunch of magazines, if you can hear this. Oh, that Foley work. Ooh, that sounds very 90s. It smelled like the 90s when I opened these up because they were sealed. <laughs> Anyways, we're talking about this weird little GM car, but before we get to that, I thought we could look at the in the far past and talk about electric cars. They're they're commonplace today. Fifty percent of the hosts on Flashback drive electric cars. <laughs> I mean, that's a stat, <laughs> right? It's not yeah. untrue. Well, and by if we scale it up, half of all Americans by that logic. So these seem like twenty first century phenomena, right? Like, oh, Elon Musk invented the electric car, but he did not. Sorry, Elon Bros. Electric cars are far from modern inventions. And and we're not talking like, you know, nineties like this GM car that we're gonna talk about. We're talking about really, really old. Yeah. The well known Model T from Ford was first put on sale in nineteen oh eight. And with it, Henry Ford took the concept of the assembly line and turned it into an art of efficiency and engineering. And and you go to any business class and they talk about early days of Ford. This Model T was powered by a 2.9 liter inline four-cylinder engine that could run on gasoline, uh, kerosene, or ethanol. Whatever you had laying around. I was like, oh, this will burn. (laughs) Pour it in there. Yeah, if it burns, (laughs) you can throw it in there. (laughs) Over time, gasoline won out. Uh, The prices uh, fell on gasoline, and prohibition actually made getting your hands on ethanol more difficult. Mm, And uh, there's a lot of history to this, but internal combustion engines really weren't the only source of locomotion in these early days of the automobile, despite what you might think. Uh, steam was a really popular area of development in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And and we think, yeah, sure, steam locomotives, trains. But one of the first steam automobiles was developed in the 1870s in France. And by the end of that decade, the technology had shown up in America, too. It's it's wild to think about how long ago this really is. It's crazy. By the time World War II rolled around, the internal combustion engine was outperforming even the best steam engines, and steam slowly faded away in most forms of transportation. Now, you you mentioned trains. Obviously, it stuck around there. Sure. But in automobiles, it was pretty much pretty much gone. But in parallel to steam, electric automobiles were taking shape around the world. In the 1820s, early electric motors were being developed in Hungary. And in the following two decades, the technology continued to mature in America, the Netherlands, and Germany. And a big breakthrough was the invention of the lead acid battery in France. English engineer Thomas Parker is usually credited with the creation of the quote-unquote electric car, which is thanks to to the lead-acid battery. Uh, For bonus points, Parker also formed the first company to distribute electricity over a wide area and worked to electrify the London Underground. 
he did a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's a real overachiever, that Thomas Parker. <laughs> I read some about him. It's really impressive. Yeah, the uh, 20th century Elon Musk. Yeah, as his friends called him. Yeah. You know, they didn't know who Elon Musk was yet, but it's a bad nickname. I'm sorry. <laughs> the dad jokes on Flashback are already out of hand. Okay. The turn of the 20th century, we're inching our way forward. The electric car had spread from England to the United States and beyond. Okay. And this was a little bit before the heyday of the internal combustion engine. And in fact, many early car speed records were held by electric vehicles, including the first car to break the 100 kilometer an hour speed barrier. Hmm. That's pretty fast. 60 miles an hour. Hey, man, you were, it was a rocket ship back in the day. No, it really is. In this golden age of electric cars, uh, electric battery-powered cabs could be found in London and New York. In England, these taxis were nicknamed hummingbirds due to the loud humming noises that they made from the <laughs> uh, inductive motors. And what's more interesting is they had actually a pretty robust charging network in these large major cities. Uh, that's a major criticism about electric cars now is that sure. there's not enough chargers and that, you know, as more cars are driving around on the road, our small infrastructure is, is simply not enough to sustain it. And it's worse here in the United States than other countries around the world. But yeah, you go back 120 years and there was actually a fair number of electric car chargers just on the side of the street, which is wild. And and even in these early days, the benefits of electric were clear. So despite all the humming, these cars were actually quieter and overall more pleasant than their gasoline cousins. They also started quickly. They didn't require gear changes, and they didn't stink of burning oil. There was like a clean, quiet experience. They were marketed a lot towards women because they were simple and easy to get started. And, and gasoline cars at the time, most of them had a hand crank, <laughs> which was dependent on <laughs> the vehicle and the time of year and, and how long it had been since you had last driven it. At times, it was extremely difficult to, to get started. Electric cars, you just pop in you, and you start going. It was pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But just like steam cars... Uh, the kind of electric car lost its ground against gasoline cars. Uh, steam cars required a long warm-up time. Uh, they had extremely detailed maintenance. If, if you ever want to go into the steam car rabbit hole, Jay Leno, and we'll put this in the show notes, has a fantastic video on one of the most famous steam cars. And you open up the, the front <laughs> engine bay of that car, and it is just an endless maze of... Uh, containers and boilers and, and tubing and coolant and all this crazy stuff. And electric cars were not without limitation either. Uh, they had a 30 to 40 mile range, which compared to gasoline just wasn't there. And they had low top speeds of only around 20 miles per hour. Furthermore, as the United States' kind of infrastructure matured and gasoline prices fell, electric cars, I mean, they just, they simply ran out of steam. hey yo. <laughs> Put that one in the books. Yeah, it's, it's a shocking joke. Okay, that's you can stop now. Okay, so after <laughs> the two world wars, electric car research all but stalled. Mm. <sighs> a few companies experimented with them in the 1950s, but nothing really came of this. Uh, one of these companies was AMC, the American Motors Company, my favorite of the defunct car companies in America because they just made wacky stuff. Right. Uh, they worked on an electric car powered by a self-charging battery made with nickel cadmium technology. This didn't get very far, but it's an idea that would actually make its way back into electric cars decades later. 
Furthermore, in the 1960s, NASA, Boeing, and GM, General Motors, collaborated on the lunar roving vehicle, which was driven by the astronauts on the moon as part of the Apollo's 15, 16, and 17 missions. It was powered by two non-rechargeable batteries that provided up to 57 miles of range and supplied power to all four wheels. On the freaking moon, Quinn. On the moon. Yeah, that's that's truly nuts. Yeah. So I'm going to be a space nerd for a second. The LRV is probably my favorite piece of Apollo hardware. I've seen uh, several of them over the years, and it was full of cool ideas. And to keep the weight down, the seats were like modeled after those cheap folding chairs everyone's grandmother has. <laughs> yeah, sure. Complete with tubular aluminum frames. The wheels were made of steel and titanium. It was It's just fantastic engineering. Yeah, it's a brilliant little vehicle. And even all these years later, it still looks pretty. And you know what? It's hanging out up there, right? Still there. Yep. Yeah, you can't can't bring them home. You know, we got to go back and pay the meters up. When we pick it up and we'll put it in the moon's first museum. There you go. Or Mars's or, you know, Moonseum. In the 1960s and 1970s, General Motors worked on electric versions of a couple of their cars, including an electric version of the Chevette, uh, but was powered by lead-acid batteries as opposed to the inline four-cylinder that you would find inside of the kind of gas burner cousin. Uh, It was dubbed, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. The Electrovet. Oh, well done, GM. Mm. Nothing says 1970s marketing quite like that. Yeah, it's just like, it feels like the future. Let's name it that. It sounds like the name of like a kettle or something you would have in your kitchen. (laughs) That pretty much brings us into our modern era and the GM EV1, the little car we're going to be talking about today, after we take our first break. How does that sound? It sounds good. I'm getting bored of us anyway. (laughs) This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends over at Smile. Save time typing and boost your productivity with Text Expander. It lets you instantly insert snippets of text as you type, anywhere you type, Word documents, pages, emails, messages, the the web, anywhere. All you do is type quick abbreviation, a quick snippet, and it expands for you wherever you are. You can create snippets for anything you type frequently, things like your phone number or an email address, or you can go wild with the stuff. You can make customizable long forms with fill-in fields, automatically calculated dates, and much more. And Text Expander works everywhere you type, again, without special plugins, just in the apps you're in every day. If you're in the world of business, Text Expander can be a huge thing here. You can manage and share snippets with employees and keep the whole team on track. We use it at Relay for much of our sales stuff. It means that we have cohesive language. We have everyone's names capitalized correctly because companies do you know, capitalize these letters, don't capitalize those letters. We have all that in Text Expander to make sure that we are really consistent. If you want to learn more, you can sign up for one of their free webinars, including power tools for customer support professionals with uh, Help Scout in March. And along with Text Expander, beginner, advanced, and team webinars over at TextExpander.com. Text Expander is available for macOS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And flashback listeners will get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. If you've been meaning to try Text Expander out, now's the time. Our thanks to Text Expander for the support of this show and Relay FM. I would die without Text Expander. All right, Stephen. So we've learned about the early electric car and kind of how it seemed to peter out and gasoline won over, but it did end up making a comeback. Well, kind of. 
Kind of. <laughs> we had mentioned various attempts before the break about other electric cars that had been tried during the 20th century from multiple automakers. But there's one that stands up from the rest of the pack for a number of reasons. And that's, well, the title of this episode, the GM EV1. So let's set the scene. It's 1990. You're a little kid, and I'm not born. <laughs> As I am four. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're both at the LA Auto Show. Oh. Uh, I'm up in the clouds, and you're down on the show floor. Okay. With your parents. <laughs> and GM is there, and they've unveiled this new electric car concept named the Impact. Why That's... Why would you name a car that? Wait, why? I kind of like it. It's like naming a train the derailment or the, or a plane. Oh, the Impact. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's not good. Welcome to my boat. I call it Run Ashore. What are you doing? <laughs> so this new car from GM, the car crash. No, 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 wait. No, the impact. <laughs> the impact. In, in 1987, <laughs> I guess a couple years before the LA Auto Show, GM takes part in the first World Solar Challenge, uh, which is a race to cost Australia. And it, you have to use solar propelled vehicles. Uh, GM's entry was the Sun Racer which ended up winning the competition. And it led the race the entire time with an average speed of, and this is kind of impressive, again, fully solar-powered car, 41.6 miles an hour, which for our international friends is 66.9 kilometers per hour. And you should go look at this car in the show notes. It doesn't look like a car. It's not a car. No, it's it's a... <laughs> it has wheels. It, it does have wheels, mm-hmm. but you would have to basically lay down in it. I mean, it, it is a, a technology platform. It's not something you can take to the grocery store. Well, you just can't fit any. Yeah, I would like side. one bagel, please. <laughs> there Here you go. go. Put I'm it out in of my room. mouth. That's the only. One. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So after this victory with their Sun Racer vehicle, GM took the vehicle on a tour across the United States, and a year after the race, the car claimed the solar-powered speed record with a top speed of seventy-five miles per hour. Whoa! Which is one hundred and twenty-one kilometers per hour, a record that stood for get this. 23 years until 2011. Holy moly. Yeah. They're not messing around. The average speed of 41, they got to 75. They really had some interesting technology on their hands. And the Sun Racer led to the development of the Impact concept car that showed up just three years later. And a few months after its announcement at the LA Auto Show, GM said the Impact would go into production and have a top speed of 183 miles an hour (sighs) or 295 kilometers an hour. It's not the impact wasn't solar powered, but they were using a lot of the motor technology and that sort of thing to kind of bridge the gap. And I think you just kind of rolled over like oh, 103 miles an hour. 183 miles an hour is insanely fast. That's really fast. It's faster than all of Tesla's current production vehicles, I think. Certainly the Model 3. Those peak out at uh, about 155 miles per hour. So this is a, a fast car, or at least so they promise. Yeah, no one needs to go 183 miles an hour. <laughs> this vehicle, the Impact, eventually evolved into what was the EV1, and it entered production for the 1996 model year. Uh, it became the first mass-produced, purpose-designed electric vehicle. So it wasn't like some of the other retrofits from the mid-20th century where they just pulled the engine out and then threw an electric motor in there. This was designed to be electric. And it was leased through Saturn dealerships, uh, initially just to residents of LA, Phoenix, and Tucson, generally warm climates. Mm -hmm. In 1997, San Francisco and Sacramento were added as was part of Georgia. Way to go, Georgia. <laughs> yeah, we'll throw in one of the way over in the east part of the U.S. Leasing rates, and, and you had to lease these vehicles, you couldn't buy them straight up, ranged from $399 to $549 per month, which was, and still is, especially with, 
I mean, if you consider inflation, that's a lot. But even for a modern vehicle with today's money, that's a lot of dough per mm-hmm. month for a lease. That's a luxury vehicle pricing. You mentioned that you could only lease them. You couldn't walk into a Saturn dealership and, and buy one of these. GM said that that was because this whole thing was part of a real-world engineering evaluation. Mm. Man, that's really corporate yeah. <laughs> To study, again, quoting, the feasibility of electric vehicles. This work was headed up by GM's Advanced Technology Vehicles Group, which is a pretty interesting group within GM, as we'll talk about. Almost everything about this car was a test bed for technology to come. That group, the Advanced Technology Vehicles Group, had been instrumental in turning the Sunracer into the Impact and the Impact into the EV1. As befitting the group's name, the EV1 was chock full of technology because it was number one, right? That's true. An EV sounds cool. It does. A lot of things we're going to talk about. If we, if you didn't know we're talking about a car that came out in the 1996 model year, you would think that it was just a car out today. It's really spectacular. So Hmm. the car had anti-lock brakes, and many other cars did in the 90s. But the rear brakes of the EV1 were electronically controlled and recaptured energy through regenerative braking. There was a button on the steering wheel called Coast Down, which is like a really cool button to have in a car. It sure is. And it enabled the system slowing the car smoothly while recapturing power. And this is crucial to achieving good range on an electric vehicle. Cars still do it today. Uh, Most modern EVs don't have a button. They just work automatically. But in the Teslas, for example, you let off the accelerator pedal, the gas pedal, I guess, as it's not technically called an electric car, but as it's uh, famously known, you let off the gas pedal and the vehicle automatically begins to slow down. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the car's braking, but it's not. It's actually just recapturing that energy uh, from the AC motors. Uh, It pushes it through the inverters and then puts it back into the battery pack. And this was present in the EV1, which a lot of early electric vehicles didn't have or it didn't work well. So pretty impressive. Uh, Furthermore, the car's frame was made out of aluminum to cut down on weight, meaning that the whole car minus the battery pack weighed a mere 1800 pounds, which is is nothing, which is extremely light. Now you throw the battery pack in there and it weighs a lot more. <laughs> yeah. It was made up of 26 lead acid batteries and tipped the scales at this is just the battery, 1,175 pounds. Oh, so, boy. Yeah. Batteries are very heavy, and that has not changed. You look at modern electric vehicles, and they're extremely heavy. My car, the Tesla Model 3, it's a small compact sedan, right? It weighs 4,100 pounds, which is the same weight as a dry F-150, a a pickup truck, which is insane. Uh, This battery pack was mounted to a composite subframe that could be removed from the car, which is pretty handy, uh, when in need of service or replacement. And all that bulk, that big, hefty, chunky battery, gave drivers an estimated range of about 126 kilometers or 78 miles of range. And that's ideal circumstances. You know, right. the weather's nice. You're not running AC. You're not running the heater. But not shabby. Respectable for a little around town commuter. Charging the car was done with a large, flat adapter. And it was inductive, basically like wireless charging. It was basically the Apple Watch charger. Just you stuck it <laughs> into this slot hidden by a flat between the headlights. And we're going to talk about this car's looks. That's sort of a weird placement for me. Mm. You could charge it with both 110 or 220 volt power here in the U.S. The 110 volt system came with like a adapter in the trunk and that took a full 12 to 14 hours. So you really wanted to fast charge this thing. Yeah, you really did. So how does this compare today? Because I don't drive an electric car. Uh, do these numbers sound ridiculous to you? 
In certain ways, yes. Uh, first of all, we don't have cool air power styled wireless charging for our electric vehicles. That's pretty sweet. Uh, most modern vehicles have pinouts. There are standardized charge connectors and then there are proprietary ones like Tesla's charging connector. But you still charge them at either 110 volts or 220 volt or 240 volt power, unless you go to a supercharger, um, which typically uses 400 volts. In the case of the new Porsche Taycan, their new car, that can charge at 800 volts. So in terms of charge rate and amperage, that's increased because the reality is, is that the battery packs in modern cars are just way larger than in the EV1. But in terms of raw power, what that actually means to you, uh, most Tesla vehicles, my car can charge to about 120 kilowatts at most supercharger locations, which gets you about an 80% charge in 40 minutes or so. Uh, however, there's new supercharger V3 locations, which can supply juice at 250 kilowatts. Uh, unfortunately, because batteries are a little bit fickle, this 250 watt weight isn't sustained for the duration of the charge. It only kind of right. peaks for a few minutes and then dials back down because of thermal management and all that stuff. But yeah, at V3 superchargers, the newest Tesla vehicles can add about 100 miles of range in seven minutes, which that's more range than the EV1 had and certainly <laughs> faster than two to three hours. Yeah. But uh, so it's not as fast as a stop at the fuel pump, but it's getting closer. And most of the time you just charge at home. So comparing it to a fuel stop doesn't really make much sense anyways, unless you're traveling long distances. But yeah, like the EV1, if you, it, this is actually funny. If you plug it into a standard 110 volt outlet, it takes roughly three days to charge my car. <laughs> Charge it over the weekend. Yeah, right, right. All right, so all of this power met the road through a single drive unit powering the front wheels. Like EVs of today, the system delivered 100% torque all the time, making the small car feel much quicker than it had any right to be otherwise. It could get to 60 in about eight seconds or so, and the top speed was artificially limited to 80 miles an hour. And of course, there's no transmission. In fact, that Porsche you mentioned a second ago is actually the first electric car with a transmission sort of in our modern era. Yeah. Most of them, it's just uh, motors drive the wheels directly. We have to put this in perspective because you look at modern specifications for vehicles and we've been totally spoiled over the last decade. Cars are just really fast now. All cars are fast. But back then, zero to 60 in eight seconds was extremely quick. And it's not supercar territory, but it's not you're not messing around. That's a that's a peppy little car. Yeah. You're blowing away some Honda Civics at the stoplight. <laughs> that, that you are. <laughs> but to handle all of this massive weight, which the vehicle, again, with that heavy battery pack weighed, uh, designers turned to computers to help the suspension and body of the EV1 with uh, improving aerodynamics to help extend the range. All of this meant that building the EV1 was an intense, slow process. Uh, General Motors set up a production line in Lansing, Michigan, and staffed it with only about 75 people. And once it was assembled and ready to go, uh, the bodies were pushed around custom dollies, so they didn't have an assembly line style system. They'd be built on dollies, and then they were driven from station to station. Uh, once the battery pack and control unit were installed, you had basically everything ready to go except for the body panels, which were bolted on last. And those came, and this is pretty neat, uh, pre-painted from their supplier. That's one thing that Tesla should probably take a, <laughs> a little tip from. Love them, bless them, but uh, their paint sucks. And it's because they refuse to let anyone else do it other than themselves. Anyways, uh, this whole plant where they were building the GM1 or the GM EV1 was called the Craft Center, not with a K, 
uh, craft with a C, craft center, uh, speaking to the hand-built nature of the EV1. And it really was a low-volume car. It was the Etsy of car manufacturing. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. We'll go with that. Uh, the craft center was seen by GM as a test bed for technologies that could prove to be useful in other cars in the future. So we've mentioned a couple of times that the frame was aluminum. Mm -hmm. It used multiple welds, but some of the components were actually bonded together, basically glued together. This had only been used in airplanes before this, and GM applied it to automobiles, and now we see it all over the car industry. Yeah, that's cool. The exterior of the EV1 was meant to invoke excitement about the future. Mm. Sorry, I fell into GM corporate speak there. Yeah. The exterior of the EV1, it was meant to invoke excitement. For, I can't say it. Excitement from the future. Well, it's because you have those manuals right in front of you. You might as well be peddling their <laughs> propaganda. Spent quite a bit of money on eBay for this episode. But, you know, it, it looked like it's sort of small GM Saturn cousins. Very smooth. Sure. It was all designed to preserve range, make it as slippery as possible. It had a bunch of plastic body panels, again, like the Saturns, to cut down on weight and make repairs easier. And talk about modern cars, it didn't even have a spare tire, which was pretty much unheard of in the 90s. What's a spare tire? Yeah, ex see? Exactly. <laughs> I don't have a pickup, so I can have like six with me at all times. But oh, I'm Stephen Hackett. <laughs> uh, most, a lot of cars now are or leaving them behind for, you know, tires that, you know, run flat tires. This had a self-sealing system. God only knows if it worked or not. Yeah, they still don't, so I yeah. doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was terrible. <laughs> but it also had a tire pressure monitoring system, which, again, every car has today. Wasn't super popular back then. The EV1 kind of helped bring that to, to light. It's cool. It is cool. They had a lot of new innovations. In, in fact, the Impact, which was the EV1's forefather, was initially designed by engineers with a wind tunnel and computers, which was not, at the time, traditional for automotive designers. Right. And it, fuel economy didn't matter. We had these big, boxy designs, kind of the what a lot of people think of the golden age of, of cars, where we have these really amazing-looking vehicles, is because aerodynamics didn't matter. <laughs> Gas was cheap. Uh, they didn't have the technology to design super aerodynamic cars. And so they didn't. And cars had terrible fuel economy. But once you are limited by either cost of fuel or range, you have to start to take that into account. Uh, take, for example, uh, the lack of a front grille in exchange for a funky beluga whale nose on the Tesla Model 3. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't like Tesla's design. Uh, but that was one of the things that had to be done to make these vehicles aerodynamic. And the GV1 kind of took that into account. Uh, it went beyond the car's exterior panels. Uh, the, the, the wheels themselves were designed to be lightweight and as flat as possible so as not to disturb the air slipping past the car. Pretty intense. Yeah, and the rear wheels were even slightly covered by bodywork, like the Honda Insight would be yeah. a few years yep. later to cut down on that drag. You know, you said that. I was just looking at these magazines I have. Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice that the EV1 doesn't have a front grille. Like, I've just... Yeah. M Teslas have just made that part of, oh, yeah, some cars just look like that. But EV1, no grille. You don't need air to come in the front. It's pretty cool. And, and I think this is one of those areas where GM is just really nailed stuff down and and well let me ask you do you think this is an attractive car you know i saw you put this in the in this in the document a few days ago and 
I can't really decide. I think for <laughs> the time it probably was, but I don't yeah. think it's aged well. But yeah, I will say, okay, if you had asked me in 1996, I would have been 10, yeah. would this have been a car I'd hang up on my wall as a poster? No, but it was a lot better looking than a lot of other GM stuff in the late 90s. So I think it was pretty solid. Okay. Well, I mean, you look at the same kind of idea in that a lot of people – particularly with Tesla, criticize the design of the vehicles because they do, you know, have a weird nose cone and they look, they're designed to be slippery. And so they have really weird kind of haunchy, low stance. They just look a little odd. Mm-hmm. And, and and all EVs that have had good range have been like this. You look at, in fact, other early EVs in the last couple of years from companies like Audi. The Audi e-tron was released last year. And, and one of Audi's major marketing points was like, oh, this just looks like an Audi. It has a regular grill. We haven't made it try to look all weird and bizarre. And they were trying to capture a market that wanted an electric vehicle, but didn't want something that looked different. The problem was, is that it had really poor aerodynamics and the coefficient of drag was quite poor on that car. And so despite having this massive battery pack, the Audi e-tron relative to competitors from Tesla and Jaguar and other automakers had much less range despite having the same or in certain instances, greater battery capacity. Hmm. It's really interesting. It's, it's These are so complicated, <laughs> which hmm. we'll get to as we talk about how the EV1 isn't around anymore. <laughs> But let's talk about the inside of the EV1. So we've talked about all this technology that just flowed right into the interior. Lightweight magnesium shaped many of the internal components, including seat frames and the steering column, steering wheel. Magnesium is used in notebook computers to keep them light, right? Stuff that we take for granted today. It had an all digital dash that showed not only common information like speed and the odometer, but had this really cool display showing you battery range and the charge level. So you always knew what was going on with that uh, 1200 pounds of batteries between you and your passenger. I think one of the most interesting things about the interior of this car was that there was no key. Well, there was a key, but it was only used to unlock and lock the doors. The car itself was started via programmable keypads. So you'd simply enter your PIN code and then you were off, worrying your way into the future. Uh, And it's actually funny that this is even a, a thing that GM did because modern Tesla vehicles actually have a similar feature that actually might be a hat tip to the EV1. Um, it was something that came in an update uh, about a year ago, but you enter a Tesla vehicle passively with either a physical key fob, like basically every car has nowadays keyless entry, or with your phone, which can connect to the car over Bluetooth. So I don't carry a key at all. I just have my phone in my pocket. I walk over to my car and the doors open and then they lock when I walk away. It's the best thing ever. Anyways, you can, which for the record, I still find a little little bit silly and unnecessary. You can require a pin to put the vehicle into gear. I wonder if that's a, I wonder if that's a, hey, thanks a lot, GM EV1. Could be. Why else? What else? I mean, maybe I'm just dumb, but what other purpose would that serve? You know, maybe it's like your your kid doesn't crawl in the car and accidentally set it off. I don't know. I guess so. Who knows? That's weird. I choose to believe that it's an EV1 nod. That's what I believe. Thank you. As do I. (laughs) (laughs) Despite this, like, bizarro pin code feature, a lot of the other controls were more conventional 
HVAC, window and lock controls, they were all managed by switchgear that was you know basically out of the GM parts bin, as you would expect. Yeah. Uh, headlights and wipers, those, you know, you didn't have to go to a touchscreen or anything. <laughs> that would be silly. Uh, it was all just uh, kind of regular <laughs> stuff. But, you know, it was laid out nicely. It, it was very clean inside. But we should definitely talk about this this HVAC system. Like, this is pretty wild. So it used a heat pump system like you find in some homes, like you find those sure. here in the South some. Yeah. Uh, this this was another first in the car industry. And GM did some really clever things with it. So the car was covered in sensors. And if it detected that the drivetrain electronics were too cold, then it would route excess heat from the cabin to to warm them up. And if not, extra heat was vented off via heat exchanger under the hood. Hmm. Pretty cool. I'm actually fascinated that this is a thing because this is still an area in which you have a really distinct division between good EVs and bad EVs in in modern day. Um, The Nissan Leaf, on the surface, good little car. Um, Let's take the Nissan Leaf and and the Chevy Bolt. Okay, these are two electric cars. They're plug-in electric cars. The Leaf is infamous. I guess the Leaf isn't entirely electric. It's one of those plug-in hybrids. Right. But it's infamous for having huge battery problems where after two, three years, the batteries are just shot. They're completely worthless. They don't hold a charge and you need to pay to replace them. And they're several thousand dollars because batteries are, are expensive. And then you have something like the Chevy Bolt, which is very similar to Tesla vehicles in that they have active thermal management. And so just like the EV1, if the batteries are too cold, they get heated up. If the batteries are too hot, they get cooled down. And this, with Tesla vehicles at least, continues to happen during the day. So sometimes I'll walk out to my car and it's making weird little noises because there's a pump running (laughs) to run coolant through the battery pack on a hot day. And keeping batteries happy and at temperatures that they want to be at and circulating power and not letting it just sit there is crucial to Uh, making sure that battery degradation doesn't become a problem. Everything we've talked about so far at GM, it's like they had a a blueprint for the future. That they did. And maybe this this coming feature is the most futuristic of of them all. So the EV1 supported a preconditioning feature. A driver could enter their anticipated time of departure into the car, Mm -hmm. and the climate control system would work to heat or cool the car starting 15 minutes before leaving. So Mm. say that, okay, I leave for school at 8.30 every morning. I tell the car that. At 8.15, it's going to wake up. It's going to detect the temperature, and it's going to say, oh, he needs a little heat, he needs a little air, so he's comfortable when he gets in the car. And it was smart enough to only do it if the car was plugged in. So if you left it outside your house, not charging, it wouldn't do this because it didn't want to take away range. Hmm. But if it was in the garage and it was charging, it would do this, and it would do it in such a way that it took power from the charger bypassing the batteries. So it used your power flowing out of your wall to precondition the car. It's genius. It's so clever for 1996. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, dear viewer, well, that just sounds like remote start, (laughs) which is something that a lot of the industry has adopted regardless of fuel source. But this feature continues to be one of the best features of zero emission vehicles, in, in my opinion, of electric cars, because you can heat and cool them quietly 
in enclosed spaces like garages without worrying about exhaust fumes and then still oh that's a good point i hadn't thought about that it's like yeah why did my truck do this i would die when i walked in the garage is what would happen it would not be good <laughs> it would not be good you'd want to open the garage before you do this <laughs> and still uh modern electric vehicles at, at least teslas can do this and and they run off the grid as well when they're plugged in for range being as good as it is, you can actually do this now while your vehicle's unplugged in a Tesla if you want, uh, which you mentioned the EV1 wasn't capable of. But what Tesla has done to make this go even further, and I'm sure other electric vehicles do this as well, is it syncs with my calendar and then uses Waze data to determine about when I'll need to leave. And the car is automatically cooled or heated to the preference that I've set in my driver profile by the time I get in my car. So every morning, every single time I go out to my car, it's just ready to go. I don't have to do anything. You live in the future. You really do. Yeah. And if it's the weekend, it's like, oh, he's not going to work, so it doesn't heat the car up. There's a lot more to, to this car. We could go on forever. Uh, be sure to check out Doug DeMiro's tour of the EV1 owner's manual. It's full of the car's quirks and features, as you may imagine. Did you buy the manual or did you buy like a... I looked for the manual. They, I could not find one. And Doug, I think, mentions that in his video that like they're really hard to come by. But the what I have, or I have two of the official publication of General Motors Advanced Technology Vehicles. So I've got GM's propaganda for the cars. Oh, okay, okay. Well, hey, hail GM. Yeah, it's amazing. It's pictures of cool people having fun in their electric cars. <laughs> you, you might be wondering, okay, General Motors, right, in the 1990s, they're not, uh, how do I say this nicely? I don't want to get in trouble with you, their new propaganda peddler. <laughs> GM in the 90s wasn't in the best of positions, and they weren't typically a company sure. that you would envision spending a lot of money developing a any new technologies, but especially one that was electric, that could, in theory, undermine the rest of their non-electric vehicle sales. Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the reasons why this was done was because of a mandate by California's Air Resources Board, which initially stipulated that 2% of an automaker's lineup had to be zero emission by 1998. In accordance with consumer demand, uh, in order to continue to sell cars in California, they'd have to hit this target. Wow. And the numbers were projected to increase from there. They would need to sell 5% of their vehicles electric by 2001 and 10% by 2003 and, and so on. And we'll kind of talk about how that didn't really end up mm -hmm. working. <laughs> but that's probably one of the reasons in, in which the GM EV1 was even a thing at all. Yeah, and it, that's a... A wild story that we'll get into, but you got to think they have to do this or they can't sell in California. That's a problem. Right. So Which is, that's a big market. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the reception of the GM EV1. Okay. And that in and of itself is strange because the vehicle, as we said, was only available in really limited markets. You could only lease it. The rates were high and there were only about 660 first generation EV1s produce. So it's not like, hmm. you know, anyone could just go check one out. Sure. And of course, this is the 90s. So we don't have a bunch of, you know, people buying them and making YouTube videos about them. It's it was actually kind of hard to track this down. It, it was. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't well received by the press and the general public. Uh, Motor Week criticized certain aspects of the car, like the lack of luxury features expected at the price point it was being sold at, like automat automatically adjusting seats, which if I can theorize here, was probably eliminated because of weight issues, yep. right? Mm -hmm. um, and the lackluster handling, given the small size of the vehicle, and again, just really, really, really heavy weight of the battery pack. This was not a light car. However, 
They did praise the roomy and well-built cockpit, despite its simplicity, the spacious trunk, and rapid acceleration that, in their words, quote, it is quick as well as quiet. You almost bolt from zero to 60 miles per hour in just 8.9 seconds. And that, quote, drives like a real car, not like a glorified golf cart. Hmm. That's pretty good, right? A pretty high praise. And look, this car didn't just get attention from the general press. It also picked up a fair bit of attention in Hollywood with multiple celebrities like Tom Hanks, Mel Gibson, Ed Begley Jr., and others becoming leases of this futuristic environmental vehicle. Yeah, there was a big movement with celebrities around this car. Big time. You know, they wanted to to share what they discovered with the world. And, uh, you know, uh, you go on YouTube and stuff and you can find like Tom Hanks talking about it in an interview. <laughs> like, yeah. tell me about my electric car. It's totally wild. Well, and it wasn't cheap. So Tom Hanks was one of the few people that had the money to justify leasing. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so it has long been theorized that GM intentionally tried to nerf the success of the EV1, not only by... No, they wouldn't. ...limiting that release market. But like you said, you're building a car that's competing with like the technology foundations of all of your other brands and this, you know, limited release market, all this stuff, GM tried claiming that, Oh, there's no demand, but it kind of seems that GM didn't want this to go very far. They they purposely seem to make it, at least in my opinion, a bit undesirable. First of all, not that many people knew about it. The car was only available for viewing and for test drives at very few select number of Saturn dealerships. And they were often placed at the very back of the store, <laughs> despite this being a completely new technology and, and different style vehicle. And GM's advertisements for the car didn't really help much either. Have you seen these commercials? Yeah, they're really creepy. Oh, there were only a few that were ever produced, and they were all really weird. Uh, I mean, the most famous one begins at night with eerie, creepy music playing in the background where lightning strikes a transformer on a power line. And all of these appliances like lamps and microwaves and uh, fridges and all manner of devices come to life around the neighborhood. And they all sneak out during the night <laughs> from the homes in which they're used. And and they do so a bit maniacally, like the vacuum turns on and it's like <clears throat> trying to like wake up everyone in the neighborhood. Anyways, all these devices come out of their houses only to gather on the outside of the street and watch as the EV1 pulls forward. And then they begin to swarm the streets, hailing their new electric overlord. And then the ad ends with this woman saying, the electric car is here. With EV1 from General Motors being displayed as white text on a black background to finish out the ad. It's very, very strange. Uh, another ad uses creepy music, uh, ominous shadows, and a near-apocalyptic setting with a woman quietly speaking about the future of a car that's unnatural and, and different. And I think we have a little bit of audio here. Just give it a listen. How does it go without gas and air? How does it go without sparks and explosions? How does it go without gears or transmissions? How does it go, you will ask yourself. And then you will ask, how did we go so long without it? The electric car, it isn't coming. It's here. 
<laughs> I don't. I don't like that at all. I don't like it either. I mean, you normally like. You, what do you normally picture in a, in a car ad? Right, attractive people doing fun life things in their car, things that the car allows them to do. Right, and yeah. not whatever this just was. <laughs> no, and like they pitch the features of the car. This is a cool car. It does stuff differently than every other car ever. So why do you have to make it so scary? If you were interested in that little clip, go and watch the video because it's even worse. There are these like weird dismembered silhouettes. <laughs> it's not. It's a very uncomfortable ad. Bizarre. It is. Okay, so let's let's take a break to purge okay. ourselves from that weird ad. Mm. Maybe I do like a pretty normal ad for Backblaze. Now that's a transition right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Backblaze. They're the folks looking after your digital data with their unlimited cloud backup for Macs and PCs starting at just $6 a month. No gimmicks, no add-ons, just 6 bucks a month. I've shared the story before, but in college, I was a younger, less wise person, and I had some water damage to a, a notebook and I lost a lot of work and Uh-oh. it's work that I really wish that I had. And had I a backup in place, I wouldn't have lost it. And that's really when I got serious about backing up my files on my Macs. And today I'm using Backblaze on both of my Macs, my wife's MacBook Air, family, friends, anyone I can get a hold of, make sure that your data is safe and sound. Backblaze backs up documents, music, photos, videos, drawings, projects, PDFs about the EV1, Everything that's important to you. <laughs> they have backed up 900 petabytes and counting. That's that's a lot of stuff. It's 900 million gigabytes. They, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And if you do have a disaster, Backblaze can ship you a hard drive with all of your data on it. Once you've restored your documents, all your files, you can simply send the hard drive back for a full refund. That's great. You're not stuck downloading gigabytes of stuff. They can just ship you a drive. So back up your stuff. Go to backblaze.com slash flashback for your fully featured 15-day free trial and let them know you heard about them here on Flashback. That's backblaze.com slash flashback. Do it today. Thank you to Backblaze for saving us from countless day disasters and their support of the show. Thank you, Backblaze. Uh, You know what? Maybe GM should have used Backblaze Put up. Hmm? Mm, this wasn't working quite Mm-mm. like I thought it was going to be. Okay, let's let's talk about the second generation EV1. <laughs> let's just do that. Let's just jump to that. Fine, fine, whatever. So they got rid of those lead acid batteries, replacing them with nickel metal hydride units. This change, coupled with a smaller, lighter drive motor, doubled the EV1's range to 169 kilometers or about 105 miles. It's a big wow. jump. And that's just in a few years, right? Yeah. You had three years after the first one came out. Impressive. So these Gen 2 vehicles, the Generation 2 EV1, yeah, EV1, the GM EV2 V2. EV, 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 oh, G- there you go. G-M-V. Okay. There were 457 <laughs> of these Gen 2 EV2 2 EV1 vehicles produced by General Motors, and they were continued to be leased to customers from uh, December 1999 to July 2000. Yeah, so you couldn't buy these either. Same deal as before. Same deal. Unfortunately, in March of that year, uh, GM began recalling 450 lead-acid battery-powered EV1s due to a safety issue concerning the charge port cable after at least one fire had been reported. Whoops. 
Yeah, oopsie-daisies. Well, the good thing was that 200 of these cars were refitted with the new battery pack and issued to their original drivers under new two-year leases. Well, that's cool. So that technology they had of the batteries on its own subframe, yeah. I guess they were able to use that. That's cool. It really comes in handy. So even though the Gen 2 came out in December 1999, that year, I guess the end of the year, GM actually shuttered the production line for the EV1 after building just 1,117 cars. In 2002, GM announced that it would be taking back the cars, that it would not be renewing any leases. And in 2003, they finally got around to canceling the program. Well, people were probably happy about that, though, right? No. Because they didn't really like it. Oh. That's not what happened. They weren't? <laughs> no. Why? It set off a firestorm. The EV1 community was extremely loyal to the little two-seater car. Hardcore EV1 drivers were crushed. Many sent in letters and even checks attempt to like buy out their leases. Like, <laughs> I will pay you for this car. <laughs> they even offered to take on all costs for ongoing maintenance and repairs. And remember, you've only made a thousand of these. Where are you going to get it repaired? Like there's a, we'll take care of all of it. But GM refused. And as leases ended, they started collecting cars. Yikes. So GM starts collecting these cars, and no one really knows where they're going, at least until, oops-a-daisies, a number of these cars were spotted locked up on an empty parking lot. And so, as one would, a bunch of EV1 drivers rallied to become a human wall around this parking lot. They protested, forget this, nearly a month. Wow. Like, they'd take shifts, and they were there every day for a month before police came to escort tractor trailer trucks to the site. The EV1s were loaded up and eventually the trucks pulled into a lot behind the security gates. These cars ended up in Arizona where they were spotted by helicopter after having been crushed alongside other electric vehicles from Honda, Ford and others. Those brands all retrofitted regular cars, but it was a uh, it was a real bummer. There was a lot of frustration because official representation from GM had specifically stated that they would not be destroyed <laughs> and that they would be repurposed for other things. Well, they weren't. Most of them were crushed. In summer of 2003, the owners of past owners of EV1, this is a little odd, but hang with me here. Okay. They staged a funeral <laughs> for their vehicles, complete with a procession of 24 of the last EV1s on the streets. Rabbi Brian Zachary Meyer spoke at the service, saying, We are gathered here to say goodbye. We are here to say goodbye to a special friend. Goodbye to an idea. To an ideal. To a dream. Oh. That's intense, man. Yeah. <laughs> You can find video of that on YouTube. I have, I have a, a link in the show notes to part one. It's divided up into like six parts. It's quite long. It is long. But I think it's really clear that this car meant a lot to its drivers. Um, there's this quote from Santa Monica filmmaker Chris Payne, uh, who organized the event, uh, talking about the EV1, said, She died before her time in perfect health and perhaps when she was most needed. Unfortunately, very few Americans had a chance to drive an electric car before it was canceled. Well, not everyone was so somber, at least not enough to gather around at a cemetery. Inventor Paul McCready said, really, it's a time for rejoicing. Technology makes it inevitable that there will be more electric vehicles in the future. And that's all because of the EV1. Not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. And they did save some of these EV1s. About 40 were saved by GM and donated to museums around the country. There's a gotcha, though. Uh, only after GM had deactivated their powertrains, ensuring that they were never going to be able to move under their own power again, intentionally crippled them. 
I'm assuming for trade secret reasons, but it's too bad. There's not really many, if any, EV ones working on the planet. Just kidding. There's one, one functioning EV one left still drives around serial number 660, which General Motors gave to the National Museum of American History. That's nice of them. Yeah. Maybe we should see if we can uh, get a drive. Still trip. I don't think we're there yet. Maybe someday. (laughs) (laughs) As you would expect, maybe a handful of these have popped up over the years. For a while, there was a game of finding them on Google Maps, you know, behind barns or under bridges or whatever. (laughs) Uh, One showed up in an abandoned parking garage. So there are uh, a couple of them that managed to escape the crusher. Yeah, but these were one of the donated ones, right? So even if if someone was able to kind of get them there, they wouldn't really work, Uh, save for maybe one. Uh, I think most impressively, there was a group at University of Wisconsin-Madison that worked to restore one of these non-functioning EV1s that GM had intentionally crippled (laughs) to working order once again, using parts from an electric Ford Ranger to get the GM car moving. And uh, in August 2005, their red EV1 purred to life for the first time in years. Um, We put a blog link in the show notes, but it's really a testament to how hard this team worked to bring this car back to life. Really pretty cool. That's amazing. Like, what a project. I mean, that's just a labor of love, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Certainly not a labor of economic Mm -mm. sense, but yeah, pretty cool. It is cool. So there is one that, I guess two that live on. Yeah. One as as it was and one that's been revived to life. There's also the University of Cincinnati. They had parts of an EV1. I'm not quite sure how they came into ownership with this, if it was donated or they just ended up with it. But they have um, actually very recently sold off the shell and frame for a measly $23,000. Wow. I have to ask you, was that you? I wish. I would have done it. (laughs) I mean, it's only the shell and the frame, right? So (laughs) there's going to be a lot of work to do after that. But hey, I mean, uh, you just take a Tesla powertrain, throw it in the EV1, and and you're set. Think of all the views you could have on your channel. Oh, literally dozens. It'd be the best twenty three thousand dollars ever. ever. (laughs) The first electric car again. You're right. It probably would not Mm -mm. get that many views. Uh, Well, officially, GM had claimed that the EV1 program was canceled because the company was just simply not selling enough of these cars to be profitable. Uh, However, the EV1's life came to an end for a lot of complex and overlapping reasons. It wasn't quite as simple as that. And the truth is that many people are responsible for the GM EV1's demise. So let's kind of break it down. So we had mentioned earlier, GM seemed conflicted about the car from the get-go. Critics said the company was concerned about lost revenue if the industry went electric, as EVs are far simpler to maintain, lessening the demands for parts and service as they age, which is a huge revenue source for dealerships. Sure. Another thing that they sourced was that, or cited, was that there just wasn't enough consumer demand for the EV1, that they had conducted polls and market research, and that they just couldn't justify its existence. But as we pointed out earlier, I'm not so convinced that that's a really valid reason because the company's advertising campaign was just less than compelling. Mm-hmm. And then in a documentary that we'll kind of mention at the end of the show, uh, they went and talked to dozens of people on the street during the time that the EV1 was kind of at its peak and and nobody knew what it was. It's not like they were working super hard to advertise this brand new car that broke all boundaries of kind of capability. It just kind of ran a few ads and... Oh, didn't work. How weird. (laughs) Yeah. 
Weird. Uh, range anxiety, of course, is a persistent issue people raise when looking at electric cars. But as time goes on, that's fading. It is. In the late 90s and early 2000s, this may have kept people away. But again, if GM had done a better job educating the public, especially about that Gen 2 car, this, I think, could have been alleviated some. Especially the Gen 2 car. Because, I mean, 105 miles around town is is respectable. That's not going to be one that you're going to want a road trip in. But there are cars that have like the BMW i3 and uh, the the Chevy Bolt is actually, well, the Chevy Bolt's quite good now. But in the early days of the Chevy Bolt and the Nissan Leaf, there were a number of short-range electric vehicles that still sold well. So it, it's it's not like there wasn't, if there was demand today, surely there would have been demand 20 years ago, no? Yep. I don't know. Anyway, so range anxiety was was one of the issues. Uh, around and around this this argument goes. I mean, I, I don't think that the EV1 line expanded to include a, a four-door car, and that might have been successful. You look at like the Tesla Model 3, that's been a car that's sold very, very well, but Tesla's soon to launch their Tesla Model Y, which is this crossover vehicle. It's the same basic Mm -hmm. design and chassis and and body on frame as the Model 3, but it's got a much taller, larger cab that can seat seven people. And and we both know that's what sells in America, trucks and crossovers. (laughs) And so maybe in the 90s, this weird little two-door electric car just wasn't one that was practical. And had they expanded it to be a a slightly more traditional or conventional sedan, they might have found more Mm -hmm. success. Of course, there's also like oil companies lobbying hard against EVs. They wouldn't. Uh, No mm, way. mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we do need to get back to the California Air Resources Board. You know, they were the group that had this yeah. rule about certain percentages, certain years. Uh, the auto industry complained to the state and federal government that the rules put in place in California were unreasonable and that the, the technology just wasn't ready. And we need to dive back in history again for a second. So this mandate wasn't created in a vacuum. From 1975 to 1985, Uh, MPG doubled after the oil crisis. And in the 90s, the Clinton administration pushed the auto industry to invest in hybrid technology to improve gas mileage even further. U.S. companies drug their feet, but Honda and Toyota shipped models in response. And we think about this time, you know, the Prius, the Honda Insight, that's where these cars came from. But during the Bush years, an economic package was pushed out that delivered, amongst other things, tax incentives for companies buying vehicles that weighed over 600,000 pounds. So a big incentive for big trucks. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 6,000 6,000 pounds. pounds. That's like... I'm like 600,000 yeah, pounds. That's a that's lot of That's uh, a tank or something. <laughs> Multiple tanks. Yeah. 6,000 pounds. So yeah. a lot of incentive okay. to buy big trucks, big SUVs. And uh, California wanted to put a stop to this, right? Yeah. So the Air Resources Board, which we talked about earlier, that was kind of the one that instituted this mandate from the beginning to have companies develop electric vehicles if they wanted to sell cars in California. They responded to this piece of legislation from the Bush administration. Ironically, this same board was ultimately the one that kind of retreated from its own legislation around the same time that this mandate had had kind of gone out. Chairman Alan Lloyd was the one who oversaw the death of the EV. But, and this is where things get a little fishy, he was also heavily involved in hydrogen fuel cell technology, which was being pushed by a number of automakers. Critics said that fuel cells even today, (laughs) still aren't ready, but they especially weren't back then, and have unique challenges like a refueling network. You still have to get hydrogen stations, and they have to be fitted to to provide hydrogen fuel. But Lloyd, the director of the the chairman of the Air Resources Board, pushed it forward anyways, saying that they should focus on, on what is a practical 
kind of zero emission uh, alternative, not electric cars, but hydrogen. And with that, uh, the mandate by the California Air Resources Board was rolled back, which opened the dead door for GM to pull out of the market. And as soon as the door was provided, oh, they did. Kind of a bummer. So that's uh, that's the demise of the EV1. You know, GM was working behind the scenes in public, trying to, to end this thing, rounded them all up, crushed them all. Uh, what can we learn from this, Quinn? What, what do you walk away from with this? I mean, I walk away sad in some respects because the technology was not bad, especially towards the end. But it didn't really matter. I mean, other things ended up being a higher priority, and, and that car kind of died. But I, I continue to think, I mean, what would have happened if, if 20 years ago the electric car hadn't died, that we continued to innovate it, things continued to accelerate at a rapid pace? Or, or what would have happened had 100 years ago that become the focus instead of moving to gasoline-powered cars? Um, it kind of makes you stop and wonder. I guess dwelling on the past doesn't get that much accomplished, <laughs> despite me wanting to think, wow, what what could have things been? But you know what? Things are looking up. They, they really are. Electric vehicles are starting to kind of sell at scale. And I think Tesla and Elon Musk, for all his detractors, and I'll be quite frank with you, I'm not his biggest fan either, um, needs to be credited and, and I don't, don't want to say congratulated, but I'm glad <laughs> that Tesla's around because it has encouraged other automakers to explore uh, battery-propelled vehicles. It's finally at a point where EVs, in in many respects, are just genuinely good cars. And it's not like, a, oh, well, sure, it's an alternative if you want to save the planet or, or whatever. But But electric cars are genuinely compelling cars, even if you don't care about the planet because and you should but if you don't there are a number of reasons like rapid acceleration and uh low cost fuel ups so to speak or, or charging costs um it's it's a pretty cool technology and i'm excited to see where stuff goes and uh the ev1 i mean a lot of the technologies that are present in modern electric cars like regenerative braking and preconditioning and a number of things that we talked about in this episode, Tesla is credited with, but really the credit should go to the EV1. Yeah, I really kind of feel the same way that it is a shame that this happened because we could have been so much further down the road with this. Yeah, yeah. I just imagine, you know, what it could have been like if these have been around for, you know, 25 years at this point, as opposed to... right far fewer. So that is a shame. And I think, too, it really speaks to the complexity of the auto industry that it does intertwined it is with like regulation and governmental influence. And that's unlike the tech industries that you and I normally cover, right? That that this is yeah. auto is like a big, big thing. And when the the world wants it to go a certain direction, it's going to go that direction. It does. And unfortunately, that left the EV1 behind. Yeah. And you look at other kind of alternative fuel sources that we were talking about in the 90s. I mean, the California Air Resources Board themselves withdrew because of hydrogen. But you look at electric vehicles today and compare them to compressed natural gas, which has a number of downsides, um, and, and fuel cells, which are still far behind batteries in terms of efficiency. It's just interesting to see how batteries have, have kind of won out. And maybe there will be a technology in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years where we look back and say, remember when we thought the electric car was going to be the future? But but for right now, it kind of seems like the future. <laughs> and the EV1 is maybe the first good example of what might be the history of, of automobiles. But 
what I would recommend is that you go and watch the 2006 documentary film entitled Who Killed the Electric Car? Uh, it's, it's an interesting film because it happened before Tesla came around. And so it truly is a, a more pessimistic stance of, look, we have this great thing. It was the EV1 and now it's dead. But you're right because it came out in 06, it leaves it in a very dark place. And that's where we would have been without Tesla and now others kind of getting back into this. So it's a really interesting snapshot of a period in time. But yeah, definitely go check that out. And we have a lot of other resources over in the show notes this week. You can find those in your podcast player or on the web at relay.fm slash flashback slash three. Uh, You can get in touch with us there via email, or you can find us on Twitter. You can find me there as ISMH, and you can find my writing at 512pixels.net. Quinn, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and all the socials at SnazzyQ and on YouTube at youtube.com slash snazzy. Awesome. I'd like to thank our sponsors this week uh, for making the show possible. Smile and Backblaze. And until our next episode, Quinn, say goodbye. Are you going to buy a Cybertruck? Just kidding. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) Adios.